Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Megan. And this is Cinema Super Collider, where we're smashing up cinema one movie at a time. Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here, my friend. Can your heart stand the shocking fact about cinema, episode of Cinema Super Collider, we take a look at a duo of westerns, Young Guns and Young Guns 2. I had never seen this movie, and uh, a couple of our friends and us were were talking uh, about various different movies from the 80s, and I had mentioned that I hadn't seen this, and everyone, oh my goodness, I can't believe you haven't seen this. Oh God, you gotta see it, you gotta see it. And so now I have. Yeah, I think the difference in age between myself and Eric, because we are almost 10 years apart. Yeah, I'm Robin Crable. Yeah, is that a lot of times movies that were kind of like, I wouldn't call them sort of, you know, milestone films in my youth, like Eric was already in medical school and very busy and not. Yeah, a milestone movie from my youth would be Footloose, the original Footloose. That's how old I am. Well, I remember Footloose too. The problem is, is that Footloose, I think, came out in the mid 80s. Yeah, and you were just a kid. I was in grade school, so... (laughs) I remember seeing it, but it just, it wasn't as big of a thing for me as it was for Eric. It wasn't really a big thing for me. It just was a big thing because of the soundtrack, which was a huge thing, which was a huge thing back in those days. Well, sure, sure, sure. But, you know, a lot of movies that came, so Young Guns came out in 1988. I was in middle school and Young Guns 2 came out in 1990. I was a sophomore in high school. So for me, these are films that like I would have gone to see with my friends at the movie theater. And I also grew up during a time when hair metal was a really big thing. And at least for Young Guns 2, Bon Jovi wrote several songs for that soundtrack, the biggest of which is Blaze of Glory, which I think if you just say Young Guns, that's what most people think of right away. Yeah, I I recall that song from that movie. I didn't know it uh, well in my head, but as soon as I heard it, I recognized it. Right. So... So yeah, so because we were like, oh, Eric should see this movie, we we discovered that it was currently streaming on like a billion places, and we were like, okay, well, let's watch both of them. One of the movies is a solid good, and I would say that the other one is kind of garbage. Both of them, not a lot of stuff happens in them, which it was something that I had kind of forgotten, but... The reason that they were kind of popular, at least in my age group, is because of the people that were in them. And it was like every, you know, cute teenage, you know, girls crush was in one or both of them. Because the first one, you've got Emilio Estevez, Kiefer Sutherland, Charlie Sheen, Lou Diamond Phillips. These are all old men now. <laughs> well, yes, because, because we're old but now. But they were young guns when the movie they were, was yes, made. Yes, they were young, pretty people when the movies were made. Uh, Dermot Mulroney was in it. 
And then the first one, the the Jack Palance, one of the one of the idols of the Teen Girls, they loved <laughs> yes, on some Jack yes, of Palance. I was gonna say Jack Palance is the heavy in it; he's the bad guy. And then Terrence Stamp, better General known, Zod. <laughs> yes, better known as General Zod, uh, was the sort of like uh, benevolent benefactor of all of the cute boys that you know girls would want to go see in Chaps. It's so funny that Terrence Stamp is remembered from that after being after having such an illustrious acting career before Superman 2 and after Superman 2. Look, I mean, it's like Rory Calhoun. You, you, you are <laughs> unfortunately known for the pop culture thing that, you know... Mr. Burns saying to a dog, you look like Rory Calhoun. Look at him on his back, on his hind legs like a little Rory Calhoun is the only reason that anyone beyond a certain age is going to know about who Rory Calhoun Rory is. Rory Calhoun was in a hundred cowboy movies. He was in movies. so many movies. Usually shirtless for some reason. Yeah. He's and, a skinny old man. That's all I remember of Rory Calhoun. Yeah, but but at least for me, the only thing that I will ever remember is like for, Doodles Weaver. Rory Calhoun and Doodles Weaver belong in the same bucket. Yeah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> That's because I'm ten years older than you. Well, there you go. See, um, right. And so the first movie had, I think, more of the cute boys that girls were going to crush on than the second movie because you know people got killed in the first movie. In the second movie, we we still had Kiefer Sutherland. We still had. Emilio Estevez. We still had Lou Diamond Phillips, and then we added Christian Slater in there, who I think would also be considered like you know lumped into that sort of category. And our cute, scary boys. Is it cute, weird boys? Um, the, <laughs> yeah, cute boys who wanted to be Jack Nicholson. What was that Heather's that he's most famous for? I would say that's like his most famous movie was Heather's, right? Um, I mean, he was in a bunch of stuff. He was in Gleaming the Cube. Yeah, which, but what do you remember him from? Well, I mean, again, this is like a we were 10 years difference. So I, I remember him from Heather's. I think you're right. That's probably the, the thing that people would most, you know, most remember him for. But he was also, like I said, he was in Gleaming the Cube. He was in... Was that a skateboard movie? Yes, it's a skateboard movie. Skateboard slash pirate radio movie, if I oh, remember okay, correctly. Cool. Um, but mostly skateboard. Um, he was also in a John Woo movie with John Travolta where... I don't remember the name. Something Doves? I'm I'm having a hard time remembering the names of the movies he was in, but I remember seeing him in like a shitload of movies. He's also been in a lot of really crap movies in the 90s, 2000s. So your mileage vary. I believe he is in the movie Alone in the Dark. He's in the movie The Wizard, where it's the kid from, uh, what is that, Glory Days? What was that show that came out in the 80s? About the, the little kid and how he grew up. Wonder Years. Wonder Years. Glory <laughs> Glory Days. days. <laughs> you mean Fred Savage? Fred Savage. Yeah. It was about Fred Savage. Mostly it was about the Nintendo Power Glove. Mm. And he was in that movie. Sure. So, I mean, you know, okay. So anyway, all of these people were, there were part a lot, of yeah. the Brat Pack. And we'll talk but, more about that later. But before we do that... Technically, l- only one of them was officially part of the Brat Pack. And that is Emilio Estevez. But... Depending on who you ask, who was in the Brat Pack, Kiefer Sutherland is also... He's Kiefer been. Sutherland and Charlie Sheen are kind of considered either either to be sort of like first stringers or, you know, add-ons for Brat the Brat Pack. Pack. Adjacent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the movie... Let's talk about the movies. I'm going to ask you to recap this time. Okay. Um, it's basically the story of Billy the Kid, who was a real-life person. Yes. And it's a fictionalized story of Billy the Kid. Uh, it's in, a cosplay. It's basically a movie cosplay of Billy the Kid. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's it, a genre that had pretty much exhausted itself by the 80s. Nobody was making westerns anymore. 
every once in a while they try to bring back the Western because it was such a popular thing back in the 50s and 60s. And this was kind of that. We're trying to bring back a Western and put in all these young guns type actors to tell the story of Billy the Kid. Sure. If you're doing a movie cosplay of a like a real life person, you don't really need to do too terrible because you're either going to do it exactly the way that the history dictates or you're just going to take liberties with it, which is what Young Guns does. So what happens in Young Guns and Young Guns 2? In Young Guns, we meet uh, Billy the Kid who is known as William H. Bonney, which was not his original name, but it's the name that he's most commonly known by. Emilio Estevez. Who's played by Emilio Estevez. He joins up with a group of likewise, you know, sort of down on their luck scamps and or, you know, um, thieves, whatever, who have been taken in by a man named John Turnstall? Tunstall? Tunstall. Tunstall, yeah. Yeah, who is played by a Terrence Stamp. And they go about becoming better people until Jack Palance and his evil gang of corrupted lawmen slash, you know, scum come along and kill their benefactor. And so then they get deputized to go take in all of the murderers of their benefactor. And instead of doing that, Billy the Kid decides to murder people, which people disagree with. And then at the end, there's a big shootout. It gets progressively more ridiculous. And that's the first movie. The second movie is... It got even less of a plot. It's basically... It's like two years later. Right. It's like, hey, do you remember that movie called Young Guns? Well, all the people that didn't get killed in that movie, we're going to put in this movie, and we're going to add a couple of other people, and then all of the bad guys who are actually lawmen, who actually aren't bad guys, they're just trying to enforce the law, are going to go after Billy and his gang of yeah, friends. They're antagonizing our group of lawless... Of lawless outlaws, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, and Chaotic one, evil characters. One by one, the, the quote-unquote protagonist outlaws get gunned down or murdered in various ways until we are left with just Pat Garrett, who is the, you know, the the lawman versus Billy the Kid, who is the outlaw. And then this is, of course, all told through a flashback of an old man on the side of the road with a, with Bradley Whitford, a.k.a. that guy from West Wing, who is the representative of an attorney. It's a weird story framing the framing device. the story framing device i think like really throws that off i don't really know why they did that i'm sort of confused other than what what happens in young guns 2 there are cer- certain characters come back that were explained away kind of in the postscript of young guns 1 when young guns 1 ends there's a, a bunch of text on the screen that explains what happened to several of the people who lived past the end of guns 1 and some of those say this person died, that person died, and they came back in Young Guns too. So somehow, and then died, and then died, <laughs> and, and then, then died. died again. But in real life, well, those... the same person who didn't die in Young Guns one, who was supposed to die, also didn't die in Young Guns two. He was also died in postscript. That would be Billy the Kid. Right. Spoilers. <laughs> so there is a historical conundrum around Billy the Kid because. So the, the, the thing that is supposed to have happened is Pat Garrett, who had originally, I believe, been kind of on the wrong side of the law, uh, had become a sheriff 
and he was responsible for hunting down Billy the Kid, and I think he was supposed to bring him in dead or alive. Well, for our uh, listeners who are maybe not from America or are too young, who is Billy the Kid? He was an American folk hero gangster, right? A, a, a well, outlaw from he was the an outlaw. West. He was he was a guy who killed a bunch of people. And that's how... But he attained the level of folk hero. Yeah, he was was one of those figures in the Wild West who, you know, he he was bigger than, you know, the story that surrounded him became bigger and bigger because it was romanticized for for a lot of, like, kids, for the most part. There were a lot of, like, dime store novels that were written about him because he was very popular, kind of like Bonnie and Clyde or... Uh, Jesse James, yeah, Butch or, Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid, right? Yeah. Which, which are not real people, but were movie people. Yeah, along the same but lines. But like the the uh, the romanticized uh, Hollywood version of the Wild West outlaw. Yeah, yeah, it's like a Robin Hood esque character, except instead of you know stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, Billy the Kid just shot people. He murdered people he just and take, murdered, took the money himself. Yeah, he just murdered people. Um, but he had a larger-than-life reputation. He did. He was a small guy. He was, it, lo- it looked very youthful. That's why they called him Billy the Kid, right? Well, right. He started his sort of reign of terror when he was a teenager. And yeah, he wasn't particularly that tall. I think he was five foot seven. Makes him shorter than me. And uh, I, if, if history is to be believed, which most people who are history people believe... He was killed by Pat Garrett at age 21 in, I think, a little town on the border of Mexico or over the border of Mexico. And he was shot in the back, and that is where his infamy ended. But he murdered like 20-some people. 21 people, I think, that they know I think is, is the count that, that history goes by. But I could be wrong. There might be more, there might be less. I think it kind of depends on who's telling the story of the thing. Now, as I was starting to say, there are... There is an anomaly in the story of Billy Kidd because after he was reported to have been killed by Pat Garrett, um, a lot of men came forward in the subsequent years saying, no, you know what? He didn't kill me. I'm Billy the Kid. And almost all of these reports were like invalidated. However, there was a guy named Brushy Bill Roberts who came forward when he was 71 years old, I believe in 1950-ish, somewhere around in there. And he was like, no, no, I'm Billy the Kid. And he had enough supporting documentation, you know, eyewitness accounts, people vouching for him, etc., etc., that people were kind of like, huh, maybe he is Billy the Kid. We should look into this some more. They were going to go as far as exhuming Billy the Kid's mother, because they knew who she was and where she was buried, to do DNA comparisons between the mom and Bushy Bill Roberts' DNA. Um, this is now in like the eighties or something, right? Well, no, it's actually in the two thousands. Two thousands. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, because of DNA. Yeah, yeah they, they DNA didn't testing have that in the eighties. And and Bill Roberts died, I think, within just a couple of weeks of coming forward and saying that he was Billy the Kid. But it's the most believable of all of these alternative claims. There was also a report that Pat Garrett had shot Billy the Kid, not based on him, you know, seeing his face and recognizing him that way, but by hearing his voice, because the room where Billy the Kid got shot was very dark, and he was shot in the back. And there was some reports that Pat Garrett said, you know, I shot the wrong guy. That wasn't Billy the Kid. Um, I don't know who that is, but, you know, I, I, I didn't get it right. Which is contradicted in his official story of how he 
you know, ended Billy the Kid's life, which was sold, again, as like a dime store novel. Uh, I think Pat Garrett thought it was going to bring him a lot more notoriety and money than it did. He didn't really gain very much from the publication of his own book. And as is said in the... Well, you know, doing away with public enemy number one usually makes you a famous and beloved... You would think. But because he had this sort of almost legendary folk hero status, the guy that killed him was sort of... He'd be looked down upon a little. Right. It's like the guy who killed Jesse James. Right, right. right? They made a movie all about that. The assassination of Jesse Jesse James James by by the coward Robert Robert Ford. Ford. Yeah. 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 So, you know, there you go. So Young Guns 2 takes this story from quote-unquote history and kind of lays it out there as a way of having a sequel to the first one. And there are a ton of inaccuracies within these movies because, like I said, this is Billy the Kid cosplay. This is not a for reals movie. A lot of the people who are named, you know, named people from history that appear in these movies, like, they don't they don't meet their end the right way. Some of them live but get killed in the movies. Some of them get, at least one of them got killed in the first movie, which was historically inaccurate. He should have died much later on in life, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. So, but all of the principal actors in this movie played real life persons, mm-hmm. although it was cosplay and it was a lot of liberties were taken with the historical information. Yes. I mean, uh, Kiefer Sutherland played... Doc Skurlock. Doc Skurlock. And uh, Lou Diamond Phillips played... Chavez y Chavez. Chavez y... That means Chavez and and Chavez. Chavez. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I know Spanish. (laughs) I think actually his nickname might have been Chavezy. Chavezy. Chavezy Chavez. Yeah. Yeah. That was a nickname for my Chavette when I had one. Sure. Yeah. Why not? I didn't have a Chavette. Yeah. And and the thing was, is historically, Skurlock and Chavez both lived, I believe, into the 1920s or 1930s. They did not die on a hill somewhere, which is what happens in the second movie. Um, Also, Arkansas Dave Rudabaugh, who's played by Christian Slater in the second movie, was a real guy. And he met his end in Mexico. He like... He was like, oh, okay, well, I'll go to Mexico to get away from all of the... That's Christian Slater. That's Christian Slater. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll go to Mexico to avoid all of these like people hunting lo- outlaws down. Gets there and then gets decapitated by people who wanted to essentially make a show of like, don't bring your lawlessness down here, bucko. <laughs> and who was Charlie Sheen playing? Charlie Sheen was playing a guy named Dick something or other. I don't know that he had a, a, a real equivalent. He's killed off fairly early in them. Yeah, about halfway through. Yeah, about halfway through. So I think the more interesting thing is to talk about kind of the bankability of these actors, right? I mean, the movies are just... Would you recommend these movies? I would recommend Young Guns 1. I wouldn't recommend Young Guns 2. Nah. I thought Young Guns 1 was pretty competently made and fairly interesting. It It has an awful soundtrack. (laughs) The soundtrack is... the, The soundtrack is not... It's not as terrible as something like Lady Hawk, which I think has the worst soundtrack I've ever heard in a movie. But... Yeah, the soundtrack's not great. It's a and lot of synthesizer. It, it, yeah, it's trying to use contemporary pop music of the 80s, or at least contemporary pop music stylings, 
in the context of the Old West, and that's really hard. I mean, Quentin Tarantino did that with uh, Django Unchained, yeah, and uh, did it very well. Mm-hmm. But yeah. this movie did not do it so well with that. But other than that, it's a pretty decent story. It's a I cowboy think, story. I think it's well acted. Yeah, I think Emilio Estevez does a really good job of playing a very charismatic psychopath. Yes, I would say so. I would say Emilio Estevez owns both of these movies completely, and 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 I think he does. He he turns in a little bit of a lazy. Uh, performance maybe in Young Guns 2. I think everybody was a little checked out in Young Guns 2. Kiefer showed up for the paycheck. He didn't. He (laughs) He was was good in the first movie and he was not. He just was like, yeah, I'm here. I would say pretty much legitimately everybody was good in the first movie. I think the script was okay. The third act kind of gets bogged down. Yeah, the third act kind of gets bogged down. It's it's an okay script. The second movie also has a barely okay script where uh, it's just sort of a continuation of a bunch of things. It's just like, well, we, we find ourselves with a bunch of outlaws who are trying to outrun the law. Well, like, for why? For what? Because they're outlaws, and they're, they want to run away from And then there's, there's, there's like, some, some vague reason why they're doing things. It's, it doesn't really, you know, fill out in any The kind second of movie has a way. more compelling, like, thesis to it. I think it's, I think so. If you take it seriously, I yeah. think I think if that it had had a better script, it would have really improved that thesis. The thesis in the second, the first movie is just like, "Hey, it's Billy the Kid, and and let's let's watch this guy go from being you know like a a, a guy who's trying to walk the straight and narrow to being a fucking murdering psychopath." Yeah, I think the thesis of the first one is like to give a historical sort of yeah. reimagining of the story of Billy the Kid and not put a lot of allegorical or uh, symbolic information into it. Mm-hmm. I think the second one has much more of a thesis as you say. So the second one is really it really wants to ask the question of what is the difference or what is the importance of fame versus infamy? Because we we are shown these two sides of the coin. We are shown Emilio Estevez as Billy the Kid, who is famous. For, infamous, yes. Well, he's famous for doing infamous-like things. Yeah, yeah. So we, And then we have Pat Garrett, who's played by William Peterson, a.k.a. the guy from CSI, original flavor. The guy from that thing TV. Yes. That I saw. That you saw. Uh, and he is trying to become famous... By being the man who stops Billy Kid, but really he's just given like one crumb of infamy for being the guy who shot him. He wants to start a restaurant. Well, that's what he says. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think there there might be some grain of truth to that. I want to start a restaurant, but nobody's going to come to my restaurant unless they know my name, and they will know my name if I kill Billy the Kid. So everyone will come to my restaurant and eat jacks or whatever they ate in, in old time days. Assassination flapjacks. Assassination mm. flapjacks. I was in the band. Assassination flapjacks. Kill a coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want some of that. Can and you it, scramble my eggs the way you scrambled Billy's brains? Yeah, and I think it also and it shows how Pat Garrett starts with good intentions and he becomes corrupted by his quest for fame. Right. And how Billy the Kid starts with bad intentions of infamy and begins to grow a conscience during the course of the movie. And that would be interesting if anybody who made the movie really cared. Right. And they didn't really. They were just cashing in. The but first they, movie made a lot of money. They made an effort to care, right? Because they, they did. Well, they, we, we caught on to the themes. So, I mean. Right. You and, know. and the thing is, is that they have added a few characters into the second story. Like there, there is a young boy that ends up becoming part of Billy the Posse, uh, played by Balthazar Getty. 
heir to the Getty fortune, I think. I think there might be another Getty sign in there. But you know, Getty newspapers. Y'all right? know. Y'all, y'all heard of Getty. John, John Paul Getty. John Paul like, Getty, I believe, was... And was that the family where the guy gets kidnapped and like his thumb gets cut off? I think that might be. Oh, no, that's There's your, a whole other that, show with that. That's your department i don't i don't know those there i think there is a whole other like sideshow like like the getty family is an interesting family and believe that that is like there was like there was incidents there was true crime stories i'll look it up but i'm not going to come on talking about it right now so we have this young boy that's part of the posse and of course he gets murdered and billy the kid's like why did you kill a child that's horrible you know because pat garrett and his like sheriff posse or to like shoot him because they can't they think that they're shooting billy the kid really shooting an actual child uh and they could have done a better job of like building that up i think they, well they didn't build up that character at all so when he no they're gets just killed as an audience we're supposed to go oh my god that's a, a a road too far he killed a kid but most of these people aren't that much older and we didn't really get to know him. So we are we are sort of shocked that he killed a child. What is he, 13 going on 14? No, no, he's 14 going on 15. He's just 14 going 15. Visiting babies. all the whores. There's a weird scene in which uh, 14-year-old Billy gets laid by some hooker. Tom, his name's Tom. Uh, and um, uh, it, I don't think that would fly in the movies today. It's, it's kind of weird. But, uh, you know, it was, an, it was a different time. Mm-hmm. The past is a different dream, right? Right. And then the other character that's sort of like thrown in there to be sort of, I think, a placeholder for the audience. Because who doesn't want to join Billy the Kid's posse, like ride around as a regulator, you know, shoot up the town and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Alan Ruck, famously from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, as Cameron, the most grouchy uh, and sickly of that crew, uh, Alan Ruck shows up as Henry French Williams or something like that. Yeah. Or Henry Henry Williams French. It's a three. It's a three name name. Yeah. Uh, he shows up and he's like, you know, I got nothing left to really live for. My wife's dead. My farm's gone. And uh, yeah, Billy the kid challenges him and said, you know, do you want to get shot? Do you want to be chased down for the rest of your life? Do you want to have a like, constantly hiding? And he's yeah. Yeah, that's fine. That's, I'm cool with that. I, I got do. nothing else to do. So he sh- he joins up, and I think that's our that's our placeholder as an audience. Like we get to be the Alan Ruck character. So it sounds a fairly interesting, but the, uh, we're we're sort of running it through our distillation apparatus here to get good parts of Young Guns Two. Mostly, Young Guns Two is kind of boring. It's mostly just riding around in the desert. It also has a bad soundtrack by Alan Silvestri, famous uh, movie composer, and it has a famous song by John Bon Jovi. There's actually, I think, three songs by John Bon Jovi that are part of the soundtrack. Uh, originally, when they were in like the early sort of production times of Young Guns 2, Emilio Estevez went to Bon Jovi and was like, hey, we really want to use your Wanted Dead or Alive song on our soundtrack. Is that cool? And Bon Jovi was like, I like the idea of this project, but I think the lyrics in my song, Wanted Dead or Alive, are not appropriate for what it is you guys are doing. But I am totally on board to write some original music for you guys. And what came of that is a song called Blaze of Glory, which was like a big billboard clickbait, you know, uh, song. Super simple song, very catchy, uh, like a, a, a number one pop song. Yeah, for real. yeah, absolutely. And bon it, Jovi was writing them like crazy back then. Right, and, and I think there's at least one, probably two more songs that made it onto the soundtrack for... 
Young Guns 2. This is back in the day when like, and, and I remember specifically, Blaze of Glory got a lot of airplay on uh, MTV slash VH1 during, during the time when those channels actually showed music videos because it was great. It was like a trailer for the film. You know, all you really had to do was show a bunch of these hot young actors riding around on horses doing action shit. Movie soundtracks that were made out of pop songs were a big deal in the 19... Pull up your pull up a bunch of stools, you little kids. Let me tell you about how things were back in the 1980s. Okay, Grandpa, go yeah, for it. Here, well, there it started, I think, with uh, maybe Flashdance... Uh, maybe Footloose, Top Gun, Top Gun, where uh, it, it was a kind of a new thing. We're not going to have a standard movie soundtrack, you know, like the soundtrack to Star Wars has John Williams music on the soundtrack to Bonnie and Clyde has, you know, whoever wrote, composed that music. This, these soundtracks were all done by popular artists and the soundtrack albums sold millions and millions of copies in those days. And as Megan was saying, it was a way that if you were producing the movie, you could get free uh, uh, trailers basically played on MTV every day, all day. If, you know, Let's Hear It for the Boy was a big hit, you saw a commercial for Footloose every single time that song would MTV. You Kids, also, MTV was a big thing that showed music videos back in the day. Well, you also got a lot of radio play because, again, this is before... This is before satellite radio or, you know, streaming services like Spotify and all that kind of shit. Yeah, terrestrial radio, top 40 yeah, radio. If you wanted to if you wanted to hear popular songs, you had to turn the fucking radio on or buy a cassette tape and plunk it into your, you know, your Walkman or whatever. Kenny Loggins had like five or six hits from five or six different movie soundtracks back well, then. Well, yeah, Footloose and Top Gun being two of them. Footloose and Top Gun being two of them. And I mean, you Cocktail had, was... Uh, oh, yeah. We did Cocktail uh, during our initial run. Right. It's got a song the about the Beach Boys. It's got... Uh, uh, it had huge amounts of airplay. It was have a Phil Collins song on there? No. It was Against All Odds that had a Phil Collins that had song the, yes, on it. That one. Mean, there were so many movies in the 80s that were tied up with pop songs. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of toward the... Maybe maybe toward the end of that, uh, that era? I don't know. Well, 1990, yeah. I mean, it, look, people were still going to make soundtrack albums but yeah i think the decade- movie with jennifer gray what was that the uh, dirty dancing dirty dancing yeah but that was earlier too yeah yeah the, the 80s was solidly a time where you bought the soundtrack to your favorite movie even if the movie was not that great it had all the songs that you wanted to hear on it oh my god yeah pop hits all the way up and down the the the, the- well, album. and even yeah. even on into today, I know uh, just because I remember hearing an interview with one of the the artists that was on the Twilight soundtrack. Because oh yeah, Twilight is was kind of bringing that back. Twilight had a soundtrack that was incredibly popular because the movie was incredibly popular, and not only did they have the soundtrack, we also did Twilight in our first iteration the of the series, podcast. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we did every single one of those movies. We're gonna release and, those someday. Oh my god, hear them. Eric loves Twilight. It's one of his favorite movies. It's which it's is it's so funny. Anyhow, weird. We anyway, but I, I remember she did an interview where they went on tour. The soundtrack album people went on tour together, and it's not like they had a bunch of songs on the album. They had one, maybe two, and they were on tour to promote Twilight, but also to promote the music that they had done for the movie, which was getting airplay on radio. So it was, you know, it was a clever marketing, cross-marketing thing, because you could use the popularity 
of those artists to boost the popularity of your movie and vice versa. So Blaze of Glory became a hit on AM radio, terrestrial F- radio. FM radio. Well, no, also AM radio, 89 WLS AM radio here in Chicago. I mean, it was oh. a huge hit. Yeah, we, and, we, we didn't have this. Oh, you could, hear, you could hear WLS in Kansas. They can hear that around the world. Yeah, we didn't. 50,000 watt blowtorch. No, we didn't listen to that shit in Kansas. And, anywho, while well, you listened to Blaze of Glory, though. We did, but that was, we, we listened to it on FM radio. So it was on FM radio. It was on AM radio. It was on all the. It was, it was on, on all CB the radio. Radio was on all the. Everybody's radios. radio. And so it was on the radio. And then you'd turn on TV, and it was on MTV. And the MTV would show you a commercial for the movie, and you'd see like, oh, I know all of these guys from the Brat Pack. I want to go see this movie. It looks good. It's got this cool song, and they're all out in Western clothes shooting at one another. I want to go see the movie. Mm-hmm. And so you went to see the movie, and the first one became a huge hit. It made a lot of money for a lot of people, and then it cashed in with the second movie. And I guess that's where we had the big hit. So the, yeah, the uh, second movie is where the where the the songs and stuff. My came point play. S- stands sort of kind right. of right. Yeah. Now we've mentioned the Brat Pack a couple of times, and this is something that maybe folks that are younger than than younger than me, because you know I'm just like I'm just a fucking petite flower, who's almost fifty. Anyway, um, so the Brat Pack. Just in case you don't know what that is, I think folks Eric and my age understand that term, but. We had a long discussion about the Brat Pack last night when we were talking about doing the show. Right. So the Brat Pack was a group of actors, young actors that starred in... The Breakfast Club. Specifically two movies that came out, I think, within a year of one another, which was The Breakfast Club, a John Hughes movie, which I'm sure it's such a classic. I think it is literally the most popular movie about high school, you know, existence, in existence. Yeah. And then uh, the other movie was St. Elmo's Fire, which is, you know, another movie about a group of young people who are in, you know, in relationships with one another. I'm going to admit this on the show for the first time you ever. Know, you've never seen St. Elmo's I've Fire. I've never seen St. Elmo's Fire. I have seen that. Really? No, never seen it. Oh my goodness. How can the two of us have not seen that movie? Well, technically I was too young at the time. Oh, because really? it was I, an R-rated film? I It was at least a PG-rated film, and it was about young people having sexy times, I think. So, yeah, I was 10 when the movie came out. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a little late for that. Yeah. yeah. So Because both of these films, I believe, came out in 1985. Okay. I was in fifth grade. So, yeah. so the people that starred in these movies were uh, young actors uh, in, their, in their teens who no, were they maybe were, in their early no, 20s. No, they were in their 20s. Okay. The, the, the group that is primarily considered to be the Brat Pack is Emilio Estevez, Andrew McCarthy, Rob Lowe, Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, Molly Ringwald, and Anthony Michael Hall. Wow, you did that right off the top of your head. You don't even have a list in front of you. Yes. You know how long it would take me to do that? Now... That is considered the core group. There was actually a New York Magazine, I believe. It was either New York Times or New York Magazine article that was written that actually coined the term Brat Pack, which is actually a throwback reference to the Rat Pack. Which is too old for me, even. I mean, I know what it's about, but I mean, it's it's way before my time. Yeah, the Rat Pack was a group of actors and entertainers from, I believe, the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Which was Frank Sinatra, Joey Bishop, Shirley MacLaine, uh, uh, what's his face, the other singer, Sammy Davis Jr., Sammy Davis Jr., the other singer, Peter Lawford, the drunk guy, um, Dean Martin, Dean Martin, yeah, 
<laughs> the, the drunk, drunk one, the other drunk one, that drunk one, the guy that sings well, the song. Well, and they, they would play concerts together and they would be in movies they together. They were in Vegas, like doing Vegas shows right. constantly Well, uh, together. Ocean's Eleven, the original Ocean's Eleven that stars the, the Rat, Rat Pack. The Rat Pack. <laughs> the Rat Pack, Not exactly. the Brat Pack. So these young actors all came up at the same time, became very popular at the same time, and somebody from New York Magazine said they're the Brat Pack because right. they're young and they're all these same actors. They they would go out clubbing together. They, they would were, be in movies together. They were in they were relationships and people, engaged yeah. to each other. Mm-hmm. Yes, all of that kind of shit. Now, that sort of like, there was the main group, but then there were people that were either hangers on and or guilty by association. Charlie Sheen being one of them because Emilio Estevez is half brother. Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe, no, Rob Lowe is one of the the main guys. Oh, he's one of the guys. Robert Downey Jr. I think is the one you're thinking of. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Who of. was who was known to party with that group? And you know, again, Kiefer Sutherland. Again, he was engaged, I think, to Ali Sheedy and or Molly Ringwald or both or neither. I don't know. And then there were other guys like. A lot of the the cast of Red Dawn from 1984. Patrick Swayze, right? Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, um, the guys from The Outsiders, which included Ralph Macchio. It included um, Tom Cruise. Jennifer Grey, as I mentioned Jennifer Grey, yeah. So there were a lot of actors that all kind of, like, they were all young. They were all in their sort of... They were all really good actors, too. It was like a group of really good actors that were all between the ages of maybe 16 and 26, and they were all around the same time. They made their big motion picture debuts, mm-hmm. and they were all bankable stars. That was and the it was main an unusual thing. thing. That was the main thing. They were all. I don't think we've seen anything since that's been like that, mm. where there's been su- such a such a cohesive group of like big good stars that all came out together. I think that I think there is there's not one that has had as much publicity. But like I think if you like if you look to nowadays like with Zendaya and Tom Holland and like some of the younger actors that you know those are the two I can think of off the top of my head but mm-hmm. I think every generation has this sort of thing it's just that they aren't necessarily as as you know pointed at and banked upon well i mean it it caused them a lot of difficulty outside of the free publicity a lot of the people in the brat pack wound up in trouble with drugs and alcohol were also felt very constrained by being in the brat pack because they were sort of a a typecast as a certain type or a certain person and uh, yes and no i don't i don't know that they were necessarily typecast i think that it was just that like there was a, a certain amount of attention that was always going to be paid to them and their private lives because of this sort of guilt by association. Mm-hmm. Some of the kids in the Goonies were sort of brat no, pack adjacent, No, right? no, no. They were no. too young. They were too young. Oh, We've already been over this. We, we have been over this, Eric. The, right. the kids from the Goonies was another wave of actors. Because oh, okay. sure. there was there was a follow-up wave of, of actors. The Corys were big. Um, you know... Uh, uh, Haim and... Uh, Feldman. Feldman. Right. So yeah, so Hollywood understood that these actors and actresses were bankable, and they cast them in fucking everything. And a lot of movies, I think, kind of got a little bit of a boost because of it. A lot of John Hughes movies were using, oh, uh, the Cusacks, John and Joan Cusack were also considered Brat Pack by association. So a lot of movies got a boost from that. So Pretty much any of the Molly Ringwald movies, right? Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, 
Um, who, so if you were considered part of the Brat Pack, that gave your movie a little bit of free publicity. Yeah. And if you were one of the Brat Pack that was not involved in a movie that another Brat Pack was in, your name would also be mentioned because they mentioned the Brat Pack. And so you're going to come up with, oh, the new Molly Ringwald movie. She's part of the Brat Pack, which also included da, 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 da. Sure. And so all the all the, uh, those publicity and fame kind of, you know, bound them all together so that they were sort of a cultural thing. We don't have, the, the other thing we just, we don't have cultural things like in those days because we've got the internet now. Mm-hmm. Everything is known to everybody all at the same time. Yeah. In those days, the media was so limited that something like this would come out and it would be like, like the only thing that people right. would talk about. Well, and it was a funnel by which like you could hit up certain demographics, right? So, you know, so you've got your soundtrack, so you can hit probably an older demographic who has the disposable income by which to buy those soundtrack albums. But you can also target your younger demographic who's into those stars because they think that they're cute, right? Your Tiger Beat, your teen magazine, you know, uh, demographic, which is, you know, it's it's teenagers. It's, it's skewed younger. And you also had the ability to advertise to a younger demographic via things like VH1 TV, um, you know, those sorts of things that were more attractive to, you know, a teenager or a young person. Hollywood was really zooming in on how much financial power uh, the youth generation had. It was the 80s. Greed is good. Yeah, the 80s, Greed is Good. And before that, when they had youth-oriented movies, they were very much pitched sort of strictly, you know, like like uh, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, you know, we're going we're gonna to build a barn and put on a show type movies or like those teenagers movies where you got a bunch of like, well, like and kid stars dancing around and doing like crazy kid stuff. Can you think of it like a, a movie in the 70s that was aimed at kids or teens? I don't know. Like, the 70s was fucking depressing as hell. Uh, the Bad News Bears. That Christine well, McNichol was uh, one of those early sort of characters that kind of transcended. Okay, uh, you know, so but that, that was, was bad that was bears. kids. I would say that was like yeah. I mean, that was a that was a movie for adults because the kids all swore. Because the kids and, all uh, said so, fuck a yeah, lot, yeah. right? But yeah, and uh, but this was a uh, a real awakening in terms of Hollywood. It's like cross marketing the albums, the MTV, the ads on MTV. The all the movies and all of the cross promotions and everything. And this was like they were seeing dollar signs and all of this went into that. Mm-hmm. So that when you went to go see Young Guns, you weren't necessarily going to see a movie about uh, Billy the Kid. You wanted to go see these famous actors yeah, because they get, were famous. Get, they were kind of famous for being famous. In you a get way. to see Emilio Estevez, but he has a nice butt. He did have a nice yeah. butt. Not as look the quality butt in in Young Guns too is it's one hundred percent the the woman that plays the um. Uh, Jane Greenhouse or yeah, whatever her I'm, name yeah, was. Yeah, I maintain it was a body double, but we don't even check. Well, whoever's butt it was is great. It was really high quality butt. High I quality. get, I give, I give whoever that body double was or the actress like big thumbs up. Like good butt work. Nice booty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent butt. for listening to Cinema Super Collider. You can find us online at anchor.fm, but you can also subscribe to our podcast via any of the major podcast networks, including the Apple Store, Spotify, and others. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at cinemasupercast at gmail.com. Thanks, and we hope to see you again in the future. I'm a devil on the run, a six 
have to steal or have to win. Well, that's it.